Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. A recent argument a contractor made to the Contract Board of Appeals in the Defense Department might lead companies to the wrong conclusion. It's another case of a company trying to recover unanticipated costs under a fixed-price contract, costs incurred because of the COVID pandemic. The case is about jurisdiction, though, and not cost recovery. We get details now from Haynes Boone procurement attorney Zach Prince. And Zach, you're saying this particular case is causing people to think, oh, goody, we can get recovery for costs that we didn't know we were going to incur. But you're saying "Eh, not so fast. Yeah, that's right. It's getting a lot of press. And I think there's a good reason for it. People incurred a lot of costs over the years when COVID was really a hot issue and folks were stuck at home and people couldn't work and they've wanted to recover it for years. And there have been mechanisms and Congress passed the CARES Act in Section 3610, which glad to talk about a little bit more, but not that many companies really got relief there. This case could involve that ultimately, where a company does get relief under Section 3610, but it might not. We don't know yet. Well, tell us about the particular case. So this case was brought by a company called Aviation Training Consulting. They operate, maintain, support, and upgrade the trainers for the B-52 bombers for the Air Force. So in 2010, they had people who were home because of COVID, and they thought they ought to get relief under Section 3610. 3610 was a congressional grant for agencies to have authority to modify terms and conditions of contracts without consideration to reimburse at contract billing rates for any paid leave that a contractor provided to keep its employees in a ready state. So the authority was limited. It only applied to a contractor whose employees or subcontractors couldn't work on site because of facility closures or other restrictions. And in this case, aviation training was seeking 512,000 or so from the government under 3610. But 3610 ultimately was a grant of authority. It wasn't a mandate that the government had to give that money, which I think is the basis for this case. The contracting officer denied the claim, aviation training appealed, but then the government moved to dismiss for lack of jurisdiction. And whose jurisdiction did not have the authority? This was at the Armed Services Board of Contract Appeals. And the government said, hey, this was never a basis for a valid claim and is not the basis for a Contract Appeals Act appeal at the board. And so, board, you've got to kick this. Right. But the board disagreed with the government. They did. And I think it was a pretty straightforward application of the law. Again, I don't know where the government's really coming from. I think this is the second time in a month that we've talked about a case where I just have no idea where the government's coming from. Here they said, well, it's really not a claim because there's this sort of unfettered grant of authority to the government to consider or not to consider these requests. Well, that's not what a claim is. Right? A claim is defined really broadly under the Contract Disputes Act is something relating to a contract with the government. Relating to a contract is broad. This clearly relates to a contract. So on that basis, it is a claim, and the board does have jurisdiction. So the board disagreed with the government and said, we will take this case, in fact. Yeah, that's right. The government tried to analogize this to Public Law 85804, which has also gotten a lot of focus in the past couple years because it's a basis for the government to grant extraordinary contractual relief to contractors. So if you've got crazy costs that you didn't anticipate and it's going to knock you out of business and your business, the government has to continue, they might consider granting you relief under that statute. That statute is clear that there is no appeal authority under the CDA. 
So the government said, hey, this is the same thing, 85804 CARES Act, but here's a problem. 85804 clearly doesn't permit jurisdiction, right? No such thing exists in the CARES Act's legislative history or language of the statute. We're speaking with procurement attorney Zach Prince. He's a partner at Haynes Boone. So therefore, from the face of it, it looks like then aviation training consultants do have a claim that can validly be brought to the Contract Board of Appeals, which will then have to decide on its merits. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I suspect what they're going to do is try to argue that the government abuses discretion by not granting relief under 3610, which is a pretty high bar. But, you know, they'll get their chance to explore that theory and the government can't kick it prematurely like they were trying to. I think, you know, I have some suspicion the government probably in its mind, in the minds of the contracting officers, probably don't disagree that the contractor might be entitled to this compensation. In this case, it's only a half a million dollars only. Big deal to the contractor, not that big a deal to the government. But, you know, with the threat of a continuing resolution for the rest of the year, for the lack of new budget authority, you know, new appropriations for the current fiscal year, I just wonder, as a practical matter, they wonder if they'll actually have that money at the end of the year. I have to guess that this is money that would have been from prior year appropriations. But you're right, Tom. I'm seeing a lot of that where the agencies are being penny pinching might be the nice way to say it with the ways that they're granting relief or issuing new contracts for things that they know they need, where they're doing it in, you know, half batches, basically, for what they really will need for the whole year, because they just don't know how much money they're going to continue having. Right. And the CARES Act did not necessarily appropriate money to give to agencies to cover contractor costs incurred because of the COVID. No, it didn't. And that's been the problem with some of the other reliefs that Congress have granted and the National Defense Authorization Act for the past two years. Both of those, 2024 and 23, had provisions authorizing the government to grant relief for cost increases due to inflation. But both of them were contingent on appropriations. 23, it never happened. I sort of think 24 is not going to happen either. Yeah, right. And so the government has fixed costs, and there's a automatic reduction of 1% should the CR go for the entire year. That's an, you know, an old budgetary rule. So there's really no money in the accounts to pay for ongoing costs of a contract. And I guess maybe the government looks at it. I'm just trying to guess what the Air Force might have been thinking is, well, they're still in business. They're still providing us B-52 training systems. I'm just going to look the other way and let them eat it. That might be the case. I mean, we're starting to see programs getting cut. I don't know that FARA getting cut had to do with budgets, but maybe. And uh, I think we're going to start seeing other big programs that are being squeezed in ways that nobody's happy with because of these budget issues. Yes, because contracting costs are really the only, in some sense, variable costs the government has. You can cut training and travel for people, but that's trivial compared to contracting spending. And if you need to squeeze, that's your accordion bellows. That's right, but it doesn't it doesn't really support a robust defense industrial base, right? And we keep hearing time and time again that uh, the industrial base is shrinking and there are too few companies willing to do business with DOD and the government at large. Well, this is not how you help. Procurement attorney Zach Prince is a partner at Haynes Boone. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Tom. And by the way, the CDA will decide this case, so you'll be watching to see what they actually say on the merits. 
We'll all be watching. I mean, with the low dollar value at issue, I suspect there's going to be a settlement if there's any merit. But you never know. Maybe there'll be a decision on the merits ultimately. And the merits of the case may not necessarily be the claim that the company has, but simply whether the government was correct in exercising its discretion. That's a big distinction. Yeah, it is. And the government has quite a lot of uh, leeway in exercising that discretion. Right? It has to be rational, and rational is a pretty low bar. So if the contractor is going to prevail here, they're going to have to demonstrate that it was totally beyond the pale for what the government did. They had money. They could have given it out. They should have given it out. Any reasonable person would have. That's a really high standard to meet. Yes. So the contractor still has the high bar here and the government the low bar, to put it simply. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I don't see the contractor likely to prevail, but I don't know any of the facts, really. So we'll see what happens. Well, somebody's got to fly those eight engine planes. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And this program note, every day this week, our special report is highlighting the 85% of federal employees who work outside the Washington, D.C. region, led by 28 federal executive boards nationwide. Learn more at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. 
Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, 
And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture, because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions 
expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one size fits all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one size fits all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.